Many of you are well aware that race relations have a high profile right now in the United States. A country with far greater racial strife is seldom in the news. That nation is South Africa. If you'd like to learn more about the story of white settlement in Southern Africa and the clashes, the wars that followed this settlement, then you will love the Forgotten Wars podcast. This podcast does more than any podcast out there to give you the stories and the historical context for the South African War of 1899 to 1902, also known as the Anglo-Boer War. So while you wait for Mark's next epic episode of Warlords of History, give the Forgotten Wars podcast a shot. In the summer of 357 BCE, the 25-year-old, newly raised king of Macedon, Philip II, stood watching the scene before him, surrounded by a small collection of engineers and nodding his approval, as two Macedonian rams repeatedly smashed against the formidable walls protecting the city of Amphipolis. Diligently thudding away, working under a steady hail of arrows, stones and rocks, being cast down on them from above by the wary defenders. No more than a nuisance though, doing little to harm or stall the progress of the soldiers operating the rams, shielded from the litter of missiles by the reinforced and exceptionally built wooden roofs covering the siege engines. On the advice of one of his engineers, Philip commanded a third ram to be repositioned, interrupting its work elsewhere along the robust walls and brought forward here complementing the progress of the other two, motivated by the critical cracks that had formed, threatening the structural integrity of Amphipolis's defensive shell, the accumulation and near climax of weeks upon weeks of constant harassment of the city, grinding the defenders down to the bone, sleep-deprived and spent, throughout the siege having been forced to respond to small but unrelenting Macedonian attacks, like stinging hornets, testing every edge of their defenses around the clock, both day and night. As large chunks of stone broke away from the walls, cheers were released by all the nearby Macedonian soldiers. The time for the final assault would soon be at hand. Philip ordered his elite and well-rested shield-bearers to ready themselves behind him, while commanding other units to be prepared to raise up ladders at points all around the city so that the depleted defenders would soon find themselves assailed from all sides. The cracks on the wall began widening at an alarming rate, soon followed by a loud rumble as the stone walls crumbled to the ground, huge plumes of dust rising into the air that upon thinning out revealed an opening, a massive breach looking into the city. The city that represented most literally a goldmine of opportunity for the Kingdom of Macedon. Not only in preventing it from falling into Athenian hands, but also hordes of gold and silver vital for the expansion of the Macedonian army and Philip's lofty ambitions. Philip charged forward, leading his shield-bearers through the breach, climbing over the rubble and into the narrow streets of Amphipolis. The initial lines of hastily drawn up and exhausted defenders 
melting away under the weight of their vicious assault. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 15 and part 4 of the series, delving into the lifetime and exploits of Philip II of Macedon. Before getting into this episode, if you haven't had a chance to do so as of yet, you might want to begin with episodes 12 through 14, which more fully lay down the tumultuous history of the Kingdom of Macedon from its humble beginnings, struggling to survive, almost eternally residing, both literally and figuratively, on the periphery of the ancient Greek world, a notion most fitting in the lead-up to Philip's youth particularly the years that he spent as a hostage in Thebes in his mid-teens before returning to Macedonia and subsequently in 359 BCE taking the reins of a kingdom that was facing a crisis of epic proportions, teetering on the edge of collapse, but then defying the odds, making an immediate impact during his first years in power, using diplomatic cunning to stave off disaster buying valuable time to begin his reinvention of the Macedonian military. Nevertheless, here's a quick recap to help bring you up to date or refresh your memory on what we covered in the last episode. In episode 14, we explored the aftermath of Philip's victory over Argeus in late 359 BCE, the Athenian-backed pretender to the Macedonian throne, sparing the lives of the accompanying Athenian advisors and using this as an avenue to work towards peace with Athens, helped greatly by removing the Macedonian garrison out of Amphipolis, clearing the path for Athens to attempt regaining this fabulously gold-rich city. With peace achieved, Macedon had finally found itself with a little breathing room, free from all active wars, affording Philip a lull in activity that allowed him to aggressively dive into the revolutionization of the Macedonian army, with the newly fashioned Macedonian phalanx acting as the keystone, often referred to as the anvil, and the companion cavalry as the hammer, underscoring one of the truly genius elements of his military innovations, in that far beyond the new equipment and formations, which were of course important pieces, the game-changing nature of his innovations was centered around each unit within his army serving a specialized and distinct role in battle, working in concert with one another, with Philip also frequently incorporating new units into his army, with examples including the elite shield-bearers and later the quick-moving and javelin-throwing peltists, which at its very root was a rather alien concept and composition especially when compared to the jack-of-all-trade hoplite warriors that almost exclusively made up the armies throughout the city-states of Greece at the time. Another fundamental change, again much different from most nations in the region, was the establishment of the Macedonian army as a national standing army, allowing for an unabating and rigorous year-round training regiment paired with a severe level of discipline hardening the troops and more importantly, reinforcing the tactical advantages of the different units working together, unerringly, as a single devastating entity, with Philip also being wise enough to layer in rewards and promotions to the soldiers based on merit, regardless of their social class or where in Macedon they came from, 
helping to forge a highly competent force, led by the right officers, all increasingly infused with a national spirit, and of course, firm allegiance to Philip, which Philip then led into the kingdom of Paeonia in early 358 BCE, strategically pouncing on the instability and power vacuum that arose following the death of its ruler, King Agis. Philip and his trusted right-hand man, Parminian, a skilled general in his own right, conducting a devastating campaign deep into Paeonia, quickly forcing its submission to Macedon. Then, undertaking a much greater risk in challenging the mighty King Bardilus of the Dardanians and Southern Illyrian tribes, who had long trounced successive Macedonian kings and armies repeatedly, occupying a huge portion of its western domains. This challenge culminating in the Battle of Aragon Valley in late 358 BCE, resulting, to the surprise of all I would add in, including the people of Macedon and its surrounding nations, in Philip eviscerating Bardilus's veteran tribal army, regaining not only all of Upper Macedonia, but also some additional strategic land gains, including the silver mines of Damastion then implementing policies to begin smoothing over the long-standing divides that had almost eternally hampered his kingdom, better integrating Upper Macedonia into the fold. With Philip II being rewarded in the wild celebrations that followed, officially named as the King of Mastodon in early 357 BCE. When we last left things off in episode 14, it was early 357 BCE with the kingdom of Macedon still in a celebratory mood following the stunning victory over Bardilus and the elevation of Philip II as king. Despite the wave of momentum that Macedon was riding, and while in a much better position than when he assumed the regency in 359, Philip would have been under no illusions that his kingdom's path forward would be an easy one, or that its survival was assured as a groundswell of nervous concern was building among the surrounding nations, that they too could potentially be targeted next, finding themselves facing an invasion from this boldly aggressive Macedonian upstart. Given that, since Macedon had been able to soundly defeat in particular the powerful Dardanian Illyrian tribal confederation under Bardilus, no one else would have been feeling confident that they could stand alone against Philip's forces a list that would have included Thrace in the east, the Chalcidian League in the southeast, Thessaly to the south, and Epirus in the southwest, including Athens that enjoyed heavy influence and a significant presence, holding a number of cities in the region. And to top it all off, there remained discontented pockets of Paeonian, Dardanian, and Illyrian tribes who would have been waiting for the right moment to launch attacks in retribution to their recent defeats. Philip understood that he had to tread carefully in his next steps, otherwise run the risk of facing a foreign coalition assailing his kingdom, attacking from points all around its borders, one that would have simply been far beyond the capabilities of his menacing but still relatively small army. Anticipating these concerns, as early as 358 BCE, while leading his army into Paeonia and against Bardilus, Philip had also been highly active diplomatically as well, tirelessly working in the background, taking preemptive steps to ensure that Macedon wasn't left isolated. In particular, 
sending frequent overtures to the Chalcidians, Epirus, and Thessaly, professing friendship and common cause, keeping them appraised of his actions, ensuring that it was widely known that he had a just cause for conducting his campaigns, and that he wasn't just some type of warmongering belligerent. While the new Macedonian king would have been feeling confident in his military innovations and the high achieving abilities of his army, owing to its recent exceptional performances in the field of battle, Philip was also acutely aware of its limitations, mostly attributed to numerical constraints. Not in terms of manpower availability, but more so imposed from a financial standpoint, not able to sustainably fund an even larger standing army, all trained and formation drilled relentlessly throughout the year, ready to march off regardless of the season. This was an absolute necessity if Mastodon was going to continue its rise, in control of its own destiny and domains, no longer tossed about as the plaything of other, greater powers. Philip clearly had lofty ambitions for his kingdom, but standing in the way of these plans were rivals that possessed much more in terms of available resources, military strength, and political influence, namely Athens who I would place as the unofficial hegemon of Greece at the time, working towards a resurrection of the Athenian Empire. In order for Macedon to have a chance of overcoming such a rival, and all the allies it could call upon, this was going to require a much larger army than the roughly 11,000 troops that Philip had at hand. But that, in turn, required money that he simply did not have. In fact, Philip was barely making ends meet as it was, given the precarious state of the Macedonian economy, with some historians pointing out that there were even instances of payments to his soldiers sometimes being months in arrears during the initial years of his reign. Although the situation had somewhat improved when he overtook the silver mines in Damastion near Upper Macedonia, his recent victories also helping to better secure his lands to revive Mastodon's lucrative lumber industry, finances remained an ever-present issue, stifling Mastodon's momentum. A quick injection of capital was sorely needed, and like the Athenians, Philip knew exactly where this could be obtained, the independent and gold-rich city of Amphipolis, sandwiched between southeastern Macedon and western Thrace a city long sought after by Athens, who had failed at numerous attempts to conquer it, including several more recent attempts over the last two years. Philip was aware that going after this target before procuring at least some alliances would have been a recipe for disaster, knowing that this action would raise Athenian tempers, who would have had no reservations about declaring war on Macedon, assaulting more of its territories, while also using its heavy influence and coercive ways to put together a regional coalition that would teach the Macedonians a lesson. Anticipating this inevitable response, Philip, before doing anything else, went off on a diplomatic charm offensive, building friendly relations with a number of its neighbors that he believed could be won over, including the Chalcidian League, Epirus, and Thessaly. First, around late 358 or early 357 BCE, establishing firm alliances within Thessaly, situated directly south of Macedon. You may remember Thessaly being brought up in episode 12, consisting of a large geographical area in central mainland Greece, 
stretching from Mount Olympus in the north to the Sperkios Valley in the south. Considered by many contemporaries of the time as the last true source of Greek civilization before encountering the barbarians that lived beyond the reaches of Mount Olympus. Though a long-standing feature of note for ancient Thessaly, and thus a constant drain on its potential power, was that it was governed by a habitually divided oligarchy, dominated by rival wealthy families residing in the cities of Larissa in the north and Pharae in the south. So, given this, how do you win support and gain the whole of Thessaly as an ally? If you're Philip, you cement agreements by obtaining strategic marriages with the leading families from both cities in quick succession, marrying himself off to his third wife, Nisisipolis from Pharae, shortly thereafter followed by his fourth wife, Felina of Larissa, and shortly after that, marrying another, his fifth wife, Olympias, the future mother of Alexander the Great, a princess of the Molossian people, the dominant group in the Greek state of Epirus, bordering Macedon to the southwest, right beside Thessaly, thereby securing yet another alliance and minimizing the chance of any invasions coming from the south. Granted, not all of southern Macedon was bordered by friends as of yet, but Philip was working hard at remedying this as well, courting the Chalcidian League for an alliance. The Chalcidian League that we were also introduced to back in episode 12 was a wealthy federation of Greek cities, bordering Macedon to the southeast, situated on the Chalcidese Peninsula that juts out into the northwest Aegean Sea, led by the most powerful of its cities called Olynthus, that had broken away from Athenian domination back in 432 BCE. And while the specific details are sparse, historical accounts infer that the Chalcidians were not a force to be taken lightly, with a sizable military, almost as large as Philip's available army, and with a notable naval presence, owing to its lucrative seagoing trade industry that arose as a result of where it was positioned along the coastline of the Aegean Sea. Accordingly, their wealth and military resources, both land and navy, were more than large enough to make for a meaningful ally in the region. Though, as much as Philip was seeking to secure this, a strategic marriage wasn't going to cut it this time, since the League was run by a democratic citizen assembly and not dominated by a single family. And it seems that the Chalcidians were none too keen to jump into bed with Mastodon just yet, nervous with its increasingly bullish behaviors, though, thankfully for Philip, not at all keen with jumping into bed with Athens either, who about six years prior in 363 BCE had conquered one of its primary cities, Potidaia, today called Nea Potidaia, located in the narrowest point of the peninsula of Palin, the westernmost of the three peninsulas at the southern end of the Chalcidice in northern Greece, which underscores another point, in that, as powerful as the Athenians were, every day growing stronger, now largely unchecked by the weakened city-states of Sparta and Thebes, they still held a significant presence and number of cities within and near Macedon's territories, asserting a great deal of influence in that part of the world. However, being that it's impossible to become a dominant force without stepping on the toes of others, making loads of enemies in the process, in addition to the power that Athens was accumulating, 
This also forced them to become embroiled in squabbles all over the Aegean, which, despite the overall power imbalance when compared to a nation like Macedon, heavily stacked in Athens' favour, Philip was confident that this was something he could exploit to the advantage of his kingdom, given the right set of circumstances. Not to mention the strategic advantage of Macedon, operating close to its supply lines, focused on initiatives near to its lands, versus Athens, managing the logistical nightmare of a far-flung empire. On a different but associated note, I'm convinced that Philip, in a relatively short time, had to have developed a strong informational network, right from the onset of his reign, increasing and accelerating the number of envoys and communications going to and coming from nations near and far, because an ongoing stream of information was key to his diplomatic genius. Identifying the right opportunities and timing to plan out his next steps and long-range strategies in particular, keeping a pulse on what was unfolding with Athens. Because by late 358 BCE, Philip had a strong indication that trouble was brewing with a number of Athenian allies, a budding conflict that was about to drag Athens in, sufficiently distracting them and offering up a prime opportunity for Macedon to attempt conquering Amphipolis. As mentioned a little earlier, Athens, in their push for hegemonic dominance, had established a maritime confederation of Aegean city-states called the Second Athenian League back in 378 BCE. But as they grew in power, their increasingly oppressive stance over the federation led to a number of their allies becoming disaffected, breaking away from the league in early 357, with Athens in turn declaring war against the defectors in a conflict that would become known as the Social War. Acting as the trigger point for Philip to immediately set off with his army from the Macedonian capital of Pella, leading his troops 140 kilometers east in the direction of Amphipolis. Though before marching off, being careful to offer up justifications for his actions, stating that the leaders of the city were hostile to Macedon, as a result of Philip having removed the Macedonian garrison out of their city two years prior claiming that they were the ones instigating hostilities. Claims that were, of course, most dubious, as it was no secret to all that the city's fabled riches were likely the real reason, with these claims probably bordering on ludicrous for most, since Amphipolis would have essentially been crazy to initiate war, possessing only a small fraction of the troops that Philip had, estimated at around two or 3,000 at most. Regardless of their relatively small count, however, Philip was under no impression that this was going to be an easy conquest, because Amphipolis had weathered numerous Athenian sieges, attempting to blockade and starve the inhabitants of the city into submission. Largely owing to its strong blend of natural and man-made defensive fortifications, Amphipolis was protected on three sides by the Strimon, or Strimonas River, and constructed on an elevated plateau, natural features that had been augmented with robust and towering city walls, meaning that a smaller defensive force could hold out against a much larger army for a considerable amount of time, withstanding either prolonged sieges or more aggressive assaults, in part due to the technological limitations and effectiveness of siege weaponry at the time. 
in contrast to the prolonged Athenian attempts, and learning from the errors of their ways, Philip was intent on assaulting Amphipolis at a much quicker pace, so as to not get bogged down, giving time for the Athenians to organize a backlash or an attack from its allies while occupied with this task. As such, while biding time for the social war to erupt, Philip had begun planning for this and addressing the upcoming challenges that his army would be faced with in attacking the formidable city. In the early stages of developing a corps of engineers and siege weaponry innovations, while also conceiving new tactical approaches for conducting these types of actions. Because storming cities through fierce assaults was not a common approach taken by armies during this period. The far more typical method was to blockade the city and attempt to starve its inhabitants into submission, or perhaps, when feasible, by issuing out well-placed bribes in order to take the city by treacherous means. Though more often than not, sieges resulting in lengthy, time-intensive undertakings, waiting for the city to surrender or for the attackers themselves to run out of resources or the ability to continue on. Like Philip did for his army, innovating and reorganizing his forces to enhance their mobility, he also began thinking about the tactical approach to sieges in a similar manner, in effect, marking the beginning of a new era in siege warfare. Realizing the importance of speed, employing a more aggressive or overt approach as the key to Mastodon's ongoing success. Aiming to conclude these encounters at a much quicker pace than the norm, before responses or reactions could be prepared and levied by the defenders or any allies they could call upon, made all the more effective by these cities being so close to Macedon's domains. Whereas, in contrast, if Athens wanted to intervene, in the case of Amphipolis, for example, the citizen assembly would have to meet on this, align on the response, organize the forces, and finally send them out in lengthy sea-going journeys from Athens to wherever they were needed. Months and months would be eaten up before they arrived on the scene, and even that would be contingent on whether the winds were favorable. This being yet another advantage that Philip was intent on exploiting. And as you've probably gathered by now, he was continually in the pursuit of any edge, however small, that would improve his chances of success. As Philip led his army towards the imposing fortifications protecting Amphipolis in the spring of 357 BCE, they brought with them the early version of Macedon's siege weaponry arsenal. A copious number of ladders and battering rams, that were probably assembled on the spot just outside the city, developed and constructed by a small team of engineers. The battering rams also covered with sturdy roofs to protect the soldiers operating them from stones and projectiles cast down from the defenders. Now, this equipment was quite rudimentary in its early form. However, later on, seeing its effectiveness, Philip would greatly invest and expand on this portion of his army with an engineering corps led by Polyidus of Thessaly, that by about 350 BCE onwards, would have accompanied Philip in all campaigns, with Polyidus over time augmenting the Macedonian siege engine arsenal with innovations including massive assault towers that could be moved towards a city allowing the attackers to climb to the top of its walls while protecting them from projectiles, and torsion technology, 
twisting ropes to build up immense amounts of energy that upon release would cast heavy darts or stones with terrifying force over large distances, making for one of the earliest forms of the siege engine known as the ballista, a form of weaponry that would continue to be in use well into the Middle Ages. And unlike the more simple catapults widely in use in Greece at the time, generating enough force to be able to punch holes through city walls. But forgive me, I'm getting way ahead of myself here in the sequence, so let's get back to the Siege of Amphipolis. Because as useful as these future weapons would have been in this encounter, they had yet to be developed. With the Macedonians for now having a bunch of ladders and battering rams at their disposal, not to mention an army that was far larger than that of the defenders. Philip fielding an estimated force of around 11,000 troops, outnumbering the defenders almost 10 to 1, with Amphipolis possessing somewhere in the realm of 2 to 3,000 troops, but still feeling pretty confident in their ability to survive such sieges, as they had done so repeatedly against the Athenians in recent years. Though, as the besieged city's commanders surveyed the scene unfolding right in front of them from the safety of the battlements, they began growing unsettled once they realized that this was going to be unlike anything they had ever faced, and not some type of lengthy siege of attrition. All the more concerned once the Macedonian battering rams were assembled and began their lumbering approach up to various points all around the city walls, the massive logs thudding repeatedly and laboriously into the robust stone walls. In addition to ladders being raised in other areas, with Macedonian troops making preliminary harrowing climbs, trying to shield themselves against whatever the defenders threw their way. Though Philip was being careful, not expecting nor trying to win the city over through one vicious assault, as this would have been extremely costly to his army, and Philip was not one to throw the lives of his soldiers away so easily. So when faced with a concentration of defending troops, Philip would order his men to melt away, replaced with fresher units that would then raise their ladders elsewhere along the walls of Amphipolis. Even with these measures taken, the initial casualties surrounding this event would have undoubtedly been much heavier for the Macedonians. However, as these assaults continued at this unrelenting pace, day and night, over the initial days that soon blended into weeks and then months, with Philip tirelessly at the front lines with his men urging them forward while his battering rams chipped away at the thick city walls. By midsummer in 357, Philip's strategy was beginning to win out, sensing the fall of Amphipolis being close at hand. Maybe he could see it in the haggard and wary faces of the defenders, increasingly having difficulty fighting off the unending cadence of Macedonian assaults being thrown their way. Because sure, Amphipolis had some imposing defenses. However, their smaller force of troops manning these fortifications was being worn dangerously thin, responding to events all along the city walls around the clock and were completely exhausted. By the time the Macedonian battering rams had managed to inflict critical damages to the city's fortifications, opening a sizable breach in the walls, the defenders quickly found themselves overwhelmed, unable to hold back the tide. With Philip at the head of a much fresher mass of troops, 
also greatly outnumbering the defending army, pouring into Amphipolis. The encounter devolving into a vicious and bloody street fight, with the Macedonians steadily progressing through the narrow city streets, ferociously tearing into their adversaries and absolutely decimating any semblance of organized resistance. As the ancient Greek historian Diodorus Siculus put it, by bringing siege engines against the walls and launching severe and continuous assaults, he succeeded in breaching a portion of the wall with his battering rams, whereupon, having entered the city through the breach and struck down many of his opponents, he obtained the mastery of the city and exiled those who were disaffected toward him, but treated the rest considerately. Amphipolis now belonged to the kingdom of Macedon, along with its lucrative gold and silver mines. Interestingly, despite the brutality of the siege and the ruthless final attack that brought the city to its knees, Philip didn't allow his troops to go off on a wild spree of plundering, destruction and harassment of the inhabitants, keeping his soldiers firmly in check, and in fact left things pretty much as they had been before taking them over. With another surprising outcome being, shortly after the conquest, allowing a collection of Athenian representatives to enter the city, acting as if they now owned the place, while protected by a Macedonian garrison to ensure that the city was unable to revolt. Which is probably causing you to raise the question, why in the world would Philip have gone to all this trouble just to allow the Athenians in? And yes, this seems strangely out of place but I promise that this will all make complete sense shortly. Now, quick disclaimer here, because the following events are quite murky from a historical standpoint, with several variations and different sequences offered up, but I'll do my best to lay down the course of events that I think are most likely. To say that the Athenians were unsettled upon learning that the Macedonians were besieging Amphipolis would have been a massive understatement. This city that they had originally settled 80 years prior in 437 BCE, subsequently lost in 424, and since that time had made countless failed attempts to recover. However, as Philip had anticipated, with the Athenians being tied up in various squabbles across the Aegean, in particular the social war, that wasn't going too well for the would-be hegemons. This contributed heavily to making it practically impossible for them to take an active hand and intervene in a timely fashion. So they instead settled on sending envoys to Amphipolis to assess the situation and negotiate with Philip, landing in the area just prior to the fall of the city, finding the young Macedonian king and his troops laboriously gnawing away at the thick city walls. Philip received the Athenian envoy graciously, listening with gravity as they asserted their believed rights of ownership to the city. The Athenian representatives also likely inserting thinly veiled threats of war against Macedon within their rhetoric, if Philip was to be successful in taking hold of the city. Causing Philip to realize right then and there that there would be no possibility of negotiations when it came to ownership of Amphipolis, as a Macedonian attempt at hanging on to it would inevitably erupt into war with mighty Athens. Understanding this, Philip came back with an offer of his own, promising that, if successful in the siege, that he would indeed transfer Amphipolis over to Athenian control. 
for the price of an alliance established between their nations respecting their domains and sovereignty, and the Macedonian port city of Pydna, that had been conquered by Athens in 363 BCE, handed back to its rightful owners. Although Pydna was a relatively valuable port city, Amphipolis and the stream of riches that came along with it was by far the greater prize of the two. So the Athenians must have been somewhat cautious of Philip's offer. However, it may be that they were just a little too self-assured, satisfied in believing that Philip was sufficiently cowed, fearful of war against Athens. I mean, how could a barbarian nation such as Macedon hope to have a chance of taking on the mighty Athenians? Plus, Philip did previously deliver on his promise to the Athenians, removing the Macedonian garrison out of Amphipolis two years prior. Regardless of their internal rationalization, although the deal would need to be ratified by the Democratic Citizen Assembly back in Athens, it appears that the Athenian envoy enthusiastically agreed to the terms, fully assured that in finally obtaining this prize that they had been after for so long, the assembly would find the cost more than palatable. Accordingly, shortly after the fall of Amphipolis, Philip allowed a cohort of Athenian representatives to enter the city, protected by a large Macedonian garrison, and immediately left the area with the bulk of his forces, marching with speed westwards, covering the 160km trek from Amphipolis to Pydna in record time, probably in no more than 4-5 to five days. Although the recent deal struck had yet to be ratified in Athens, a great deal of confusion existed regarding when the handover of Pydna was supposed to occur. Confusion, which Philip had purposely exacerbated when he arrived at the city gates, far outnumbering the Athenian garrison, piling yet more pressure onto the scenario. Perhaps accompanied by some Athenian officials that were bought and paid for, in other words, bribed, in order to attest to the legitimacy of the deal. Or maybe even by buying off the Athenian commander in Pydna. It's unclear exactly how this occurred, but the prevailing historical consensus is that the takeover of the city was facilitated through treachery, resulting in an uncertain and half-hearted opposition offered up by the Athenians, who were also dismayed with the overwhelming show of Macedonian power at their doorstep easily allowing Philip to assume control of Pydna in what ended up as a bloodless takeover, followed by not harming but quickly casting out the Athenian troops and sending them home, though not before stripping them of their arms and armor. As a quick side note, Philip was known to be just as proud of these types of accomplishments, bribing and outsmarting his foes to conquer and take possessions of their lands and cities almost as much as his battle victories often preferring that path in order to preserve the lives of his precious troops. With one of Philip's most famous quotes being, there is no wall that is high enough to stop a horse with a cart filled with gold. Now, to make things even worse for the outmaneuvered Athenians, upon taking possession of Pydna, Philip commanded couriers on horseback to immediately rush back to Amphipolis connecting with the commander of the Macedonian garrison left behind, who, as planned, now that Pydna had been secured, proceeded to gather the Athenian representatives they had been quote-unquote protecting, and promptly send them packing, 
not harming them, but leading them out of the city and slamming the gate shut behind them. All of these events amounting to another prime example of Philip's diplomatic genius and trickery. With the city of Pydna restored to the Macedonians, and thus the Athenian presence in this area weakened, all through some quick and clever scheming. Philip never had any intention whatsoever of giving Amphipolis up. The city, or more specifically the mines that were the ticket in terms of funding his lofty ambitions, that was soon providing an unending stream of cartloads laden with gold and silver now regularly being hauled off to the treasury in Pella with Philip spending it as quickly as it came in, using it to finance the expansion of his standing army, knowing that the Athenian backlash would soon be coming. Because, upon learning of being fully duped by Philip, the Athenians were infuriated, declaring war on Macedon and promising severe retribution in response to recent events. Members of the Athenian assembly shouting out oaths to the destruction of Macedon, though in reality, due to all their military engagements that were primarily focused on trying to keep the Second Athenian League together, they were unable to launch any meaningful invasions themselves. Though this doesn't mean that they were toothless or powerless to do anything about Macedon, enjoying a great deal of influence throughout the Aegean, with many nations close to Macedon that they could call upon to do its bidding for them. As such, the Athenians spent the balance of 357 into early 356 BCE wheeling and dealing, cobbling together an impressive coalition to invade Macedon. That included a collection of their neighboring adversaries, the Thracians and rebellious factions within Paeonia and Illyria, setting the stage for a dangerous three-pronged invasion threatening Macedonia from the east, north, and west with Philip during this same period making extensive preparations for the impending waves, recruiting more soldiers, putting them through the notorious gauntlet of unrelenting training and drilling, greatly expanding the size of the Macedonian army, that by early 356 may have swelled to as many as 20,000 troops. That Philip then divided into two capable armies, a much more efficient approach to deal with the multitude of enemies that surrounded them on all sides. Commanding his most trusted general, Parminian, that we were introduced to in episode 14, to position himself in the western portion of the kingdom, in anticipation of the Illyrian incursions. With Philip stationed in Pella, getting ready for whatever the Thracians and rebellious Paeonians were going to throw their way, but also because he had other objectives in mind, aimed at dislodging the last few remaining Athenian holdings near his kingdom. Two cities in particular that were dangerously close to Macedonian lands, acting as bases from which the Athenians could still potentially stir a lot of trouble for Philip, namely the city of Methone, that was situated just 10 kilometers north of Pydna, and Potidaia, the city belonging to the Chalcidians that the Athenians had conquered in 363 BCE. Of all the nations adjacent to its domains, it was rather clear where their allegiances lay. The Thessalians and Epirus allied with Macedon, with the Thracians and factions within Paeonia and Illyria responding to the Athenian call to action. However, one remaining nation was still on the fence, the Chalcidians, being energetically courted by both Philip and Athens. Although, despite the Athenian overtures, since they were unwilling to hand back the city of Potidaia, 
this essentially became a non-starter for the Chalcidians to throw in their lot with Athens. Now, in terms of entertaining Macedon's advances, as alluded to a little earlier, the Chalcidian League was extremely uncomfortable with how bold Macedon was acting, amplified by their recent takeover of Amphipolis, and as such were quite lukewarm to Philip's offers of an alliance. However, understanding that the city of Potidaia was a firm sticking point for the Chalcidians, Philip decided to offer what the Athenians were unwilling to return, and what the Chalcidians had been unable to regain control of, despite several failed attempts over the past seven years, promising to conquer Potidaia on behalf of the Chalcidian League, and promptly hand it over to them, which, despite their concerns, was an offer just too good to pass up finally winning the Chalcidians over to the Macedonian side. No small gain in itself, since as mentioned earlier, they had decent military capabilities, both land and navy-wise, but more importantly, preventing any foreign incursions coming in from the south of the kingdom, since they already had their hands full in all other directions. Now, I can't help but consider what would have happened to Macedon had the Chalcidians joined in with Athens. It's really tough to say. Perhaps Philip would have been able to deal with them as well, if required, but of course, impossible to know for sure, as it's also difficult to deny just how devastating a forefront war could have been to inhibiting Macedon's rise, had the alliance not been obtained. Into early 356 BCE, with enemies abound and foreign invasions pending, it may have been prudent for Philip to take up a defensive stance in the event that a coordinated attack was made into his lands coming from several directions. However, given what we now know of Philip, that just wasn't his style. Clearly not one to wait for others to determine when and where Mastodon's battles were fought. He instead proactively marched his army north into Paeonia to deal with the insurrection that had been stoked by the Athenians. And while we don't have a detailed account of exactly what transpired, it appears that the rebellious Paeonian tribes hadn't learned the lessons from Philip's previous invasion just two short years ago in 358 BCE, who again managed to catch them by complete surprise, with the frighteningly quick mobility of his army on display yet again, that then proceeded to thoroughly decimate the tribes that had dared to rise against him, while also terrifying the other Paeonian tribes to such a degree that no future attempts would be taken from there on in to challenge Macedonian rule. Of this event in his book, The History and Life and Reign of Philip, King of Mastodon, Thomas Leland writes, Philip surprised the Paeonians and reduced them to such a state of subjection that appears to have rendered them incapable of giving any further opposition. From this time, history makes no mention of any attempt to recover their independence. Upon learning of how quickly and thoroughly Philip had dealt with the Paeonians, you might think that this would have caused the Athenians to maybe pause and reconsider their course of action in dealing with this emerging threat that was starting to steadily eat up their holdings and cities along the northern coast of the Aegean. That maybe they shouldn't have just relied on allies, perhaps pouring more of their own resources and troops into this endeavor to overwhelm the kingdom of Macedon and they were certainly considering this. In fact, in future episodes, we'll learn about one Athenian statesman by the name of Demosthenes, 
that from early on anticipated Macedon as the biggest threat to Athenian dominance. At this early stage of their conflict, however, most other Athenians didn't share his opinion, finding it hard to believe that Macedon could do anything more than just be a regional nuisance, instead prioritizing other foes and difficulties that they were wrestling with. Plus, they could always deal with this nuisance later on, if it didn't fizzle out by then. The thing is, even if they wanted to, they were stretched pretty thin as it was, involved in various smaller squabbles and at the center of the aforementioned social war. Although one could put together an argument that perhaps they could have figured out a way to send some troops or mercenaries into Macedon to improve the chances of the coalition seeing any success, the potential for this would have been fatally squashed by yet another war that was kicked off in 356 BCE, involving not only Athens, but almost all nations of classical Greece, called the Third Sacred War. What? Another war, you may be thinking? Yes. Let's add more confusion into the mix by exploring the origins of this ancient Greek version of a world war. The Third Sacred War was instigated by an insanely steep fine imposed on the Phocians, a nation of minor power whose location in modern terms would be central mainland Greece. This fine being imposed for the grave offense of cultivating sacred lands near the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, one of the most important religious sites in all of Greece. As a quick side note, the Temple of Apollo housed the oracle, that was consulted by wealthy individuals, prominent political figures, and even heads of state throughout antiquity in order to hear its prophecies and seek advice to help inform big decisions, such as whether the timing is right to kick off a war or make an alliance, etc. These individuals offering up costly and lavish gifts in order to be worthy of seeking advice from the god Apollo, right from the mouth of the oracle, which was in fact a woman the high priestess, or better yet, a series of high priestesses called the Pythia, who from their inner sanctum deep inside the temple would breathe in the volcanic and probably quite toxic fumes being emitted underground, causing the oracle to utter cryptic words or poems in response to the question being raised. Now, Phocis was a nation of nominal power in antiquity, situated between Thessaly to the north and Thebes to the south. And the fine that they were given was, to put it lightly, massively outlandish, amounting to 500 talents. Just to add some context in terms of the amount, 5th century Athens, at the zenith of their power, around 100 years prior to this point in time, had an annual revenue estimated at 1,000 talents. Of this fine, the ancient Roman historian Justin wrote that, the Phocians were sentenced to pay such a fine that it was impossible for them to raise, forcing them to resort to desperation, as if they were enraged at the god Apollo. This severe sentence was imposed by something called the Amphictyonic League, that included a number of Greek states such as Thessaly, but that was essentially dominated by the city-state of Thebes, who had an axe to grind against Phocis due to pre-existing disputes and bad blood between the two nations. What Thebes had expected to happen, being that Phocis had despoiled sacred lands and was unable to pay the associated fine, was for the members of the Amphictyonic League to descend upon Phocis, waging a sacred war and utterly destroying them in the process. 
However, what ended up happening? What is that English saying? In for a penny, in for a pound? The Phokians, seeing what was on the horizon waiting for them, went all in with another particularly egregious and sacrilegious act. Seizing the treasury of the temple in Delphi, possibly around 10,000 talents, which Phocus put to use to procure hordes of mercenaries to battle Thebes and its allies. Along with drawing in both Sparta and Athens as allies on the side of Phocus, since these two had a vested interest in continuing to reduce Theban power. Although Philip would not involve Macedon in this war in its early stages, this was exactly the type of chaotic environment that he could skillfully exploit, and that ended up playing a key contributing factor in allowing for the rise of Macedon to occur. In the short term, giving yet more room for Philip to continue asserting dominance in and around his kingdom in modern northern Greece, while everyone else was busy fighting in central Greece, which in time would be shown to have longer-term implications, further exhausting and weakening the nations of Greece, along with their future ability to unify and oppose Philip's expansion into their realms. Getting back to the sequence of Philip's story, having again thoroughly dealt with the Paeonians, Philip immediately pivoted, leading his army south towards the Chalcides Peninsula, focused on setting siege to the city of Potidaea and wrestling it from the hands of the Athenians. From a national security perspective, although Thrace to the east of Mastodon's borders posed a far greater threat, Philip was intent on dealing with Potidaea first to ensure that the Chalcidians remained satisfied and cooperative being that the central pillar of securing their alliance was based on recovering the city as he had promised. Accordingly, in mid-356 BCE, Philip and his Macedonian contingent of approximately 11,000 troops, augmented by a Chalcidian force in the low thousands, surrounded Potidaea, with the Chalcidian navy used to blockade the city's waterways to the Aegean Sea undertaking a similar strategy to that used when assailing Amphipolis, beginning to slowly chip away at the defenses of the city while wearing down its defenders. Early into the siege, however, Philip received an urgent envoy from the nearby city of Crenides, an independent ethnic Greek city-state located about 60 kilometers east of Amphipolis, across the Pangios Mountains. Near to the Aegean coastline, occupying a small pocket of land surrounded by the western portion of the Thracian or Adrygian kingdom. The envoy imploring Philip for assistance to defend them against Berisades, the king of western Thrace that we were introduced to back in episode 13, who was now bearing down on the isolated city-state, threatening to absorb Crenides into his domains. The request in itself might not have meant a whole lot to Philip, if it were not for the prize that Crenides represented, in the form of yet more veins of gleaming gold. Being that, like Amphipolis, situated so close to Macedon's most recent addition, and thus sharing lands with similar geological makeup, Crenides was a mining city, with rich gold deposits that the Thracians were looking to secure, and that would have been invaluable to help finance the upcoming war against Macedon. Understanding all of this, Philip immediately readied the bulk of his army and set off towards the city of Crenides, leaving enough Macedonian troops and the Chalcidians behind to keep the siege of Potidaea going. 
Unfortunately, the following sequence of events is lacking in terms of firm historical documentation. But the prevailing idea is that Philip force-marched the majority of his army from Potidaia at a frenzied pace, managing to reach the city before the Thracians, welcomed into the city as its savior and protector. While it's terribly uncertain how large of an army that Philip had with him at this time, I'm convinced that it had to have been fairly significant. Because once Crinides was secured, Philip continued marauding in the area for some months, meeting and devastating Berisades and his Thracian army in a series of skirmishes and battles. The western Thracian king also killed in one of the encounters, with Philip in the process taking large portions of the western Odrysian kingdom, the eastern border of Mastodon now extending all the way to the Nestos River in modern northeastern Greece. Oh, and in case you hadn't guessed it, Crenides was no longer left as an independent city-state, Philip now declaring it as part of Macedon and renaming the city as Philippi, a declaration that, for obvious reasons, the inhabitants had little choice but to go with. Before we delve into Philip's next steps following his campaign in Thrace and the takeover of Crenides, renamed as Philippi, Let's take a quick moment to consider the impact of this newest acquisition to the Kingdom of Macedon, because it was, in short, fundamental. Philippi, along with neighboring Amphipolis, being fundamental to invigorating the Macedonian economy, as well as financing Philip's military expansion, thus heavily contributing to the rise of Macedon. According to some ancient historians, the mines of Philippi would soon be generating an annual income of 1,000 talents for Macedon. Although this is disputed, with more recent assessments asserting that it was the combined mining activity in both Philippi and Amphipolis that were netting the kingdom 1,000 talents per year. Remember the comparison number with the Athenian Empire about 100 years back at the peak of their power, holistically bringing in 1,000 talents per year? Even if we go with the more conservative scenario, that it was both mines generating that income for Macedon, what is absolutely clear is that these cities would make Macedon, by far, the richest nation in all of Greece, meaning that finances were never going to be an impediment for fueling Philip's ambitions from this point onwards. Of course, the addition of these mines was alone beneficial. But along with the silver mines taken from Bardilis in 358 BCE, and the re-establishment of the Macedonian lumber industry, now that its territories were better secured and centralized, all of this resulted in a seismic boost to the Macedonian economy, that had been in a dismal state when Philip rose to power in 359. A huge source of wealth rolling in that spurred more economic growth, and resulting in trade routes being changed to ensure that they included passages into Macedonian lands and cities, that the state could in turn also profit from, a windfall of higher tax yields, land tolls, and port fees, taking advantage of the high volume of merchant traffic entering the kingdom, looking to sell their wares and also benefit from the influx of wealth. As Diodorus Siculus puts it, and because from these mines he had soon amassed a fortune, with the abundance of money, he raised the Macedonian kingdom higher and higher to a greatly superior position. Beyond the expansion of its military forces that this economic surge paid for, 
Philip also became known for aggressively spending throughout his reign, commissioning construction projects throughout Macedon, including enhanced fortifications for cities, royal palaces, elaborate military training grounds, and public works, including temples, theaters, and sculptures, heavily concentrating on the Macedonian capital of Pella, aiming and eventually succeeding in transforming it into a leading center of Hellenic or Greek culture. In fact, his spending was so aggressive that when his son Alexander later came into power, despite the colossal yearly revenues coming in, Mastodon was left slightly in debt. Interestingly, another unforeseen impact of this Macedonian economic surge to the detriment of Athens was that the huge influx of gold, but in particular the tremendous supply of silver flooding the markets of Greece in such a short amount of time, eventually resulted in bringing down the value of this precious metal. The devaluing of silver being particularly painful for Athens, with a large portion of its annual income coming out of the silver mines it held throughout Attica, Attica being the land surrounding the city of Athens. Their silver coins now not stretching as far as they used to, to do things like fund the raising of armies, naval fleets, or purchase mercenaries. Not a decisive factor, but one that nonetheless contributed to weakening and further reducing the chances of the Athenians regaining dominance at this time in the 4th century. Returning back to the sequence of Philip's story, although the Thracians were stinging from the recent encounters with Philip, they were by no means finished, possessing a great deal more in terms of military capabilities in central and eastern Thrace. However, Philip didn't press further inwards because Potidaia still needed to be dealt with, otherwise risk the Chalcidians opting out of the alliance. Accordingly, after leaving a large garrison behind headquartered in the city of Philippi, formerly known as Crinides, Philip gathered his remaining forces and made his way back to Potidaia towards the early fall of 356 BCE. Though, given all the action the Macedonian army had seen, although overwhelmingly positive encounters for his forces, they must have undoubtedly experienced at least some losses. However, by this point, having anticipated that a consistent need for manpower was critical for continuing on his set path, Philip would have had freshly trained reinforcements at the ready, emerging out of the training grounds in Pella to replace the losses and maintain the fighting strength of his army, that was again put to use immediately upon returning to Potidaia. As you may recall, the city was under siege by the Chalcidian army and the Macedonian troops that Philip had left behind, before venturing off to conquer Philippi and western Thrace the siege making solid progress in constricting and weakening the defenses of the city in his absence, so much that, by the time Philip returned, this enabled him to begin launching more aggressive assaults. This huge mass of troops more viciously and progressively threatening to overrun Potidaia, coupled by the understanding that the Athenians, nor anyone else was going to help them out of this predicament, caused the defenders to lose appetite for keeping the resistance going, and raise the white flag of surrender, with Philip, as promised, ceding the city to the control of the Chalcidian League before returning to Pella in late 356 BCE. 356 had been a monumental year for Philip and the Kingdom of Macedon, 
the rise of Macedon clearly on the horizon for those not blinded by distraction or their own magnificence. Allies gained and galvanized, enemies chastised, in particular the Paeonians, Thracians, and Athenians, the domains of the kingdom increased, and its wealth massively enhanced. With more good news filtering in as Philip considered his next steps, taking a brief pause while situated in Pella, learning that, one, of his horse winning a race in the Olympic Games of 356, another piece adding to the prestige of Macedon among his Greek counterparts. Two, that Perminion, his trusted general, had scored a major battle victory over an Illyrian army, adding yet more territories and securing Macedonia's western and northwestern borders. And finally three, that a son was born to him from his wife Olympias, his succession assured through Alexander III the future Alexander the Great. 356 had indeed been favorable to Philip, adding greatly to his power and authority that was now wholly unquestioned at the helm of his kingdom. Representing a significant change from that of his predecessors, that had long placed constraints and inhibited any previous momentum that Macedon could have built upon. All his policy changes and successes rendering the Macedonian nobility to have less influence, less capable of interfering or throwing wrenches into state affairs and actions. For example, another policy that helps to illustrate this is that Philip is credited with institutionalizing for Macedonia, borrowing from Persian and Athenian traditions, was the office of episkopoi, meaning overseers or supervisors, governors of territories and cities within the kingdom that answered to the king and the king alone. Philip was becoming completely unfettered, no longer a first among equals, but the absolute king of Macedon. Though Philip himself was never really overt with this notion, at least vocally, he spoke through his actions, and all within the kingdom were increasingly finding that they were essentially powerless to do anything but go along with it. As 356 came to a close, Philip would have stood in his throne room in Pella, studiously overlooking the map of his kingdom, satisfied with what had transpired in just four years into his reign. All of Macedonia's ancestral territories clawed back and reclaimed, borders strengthened, along with a number of significant additions to his growing empire. Well, maybe not completely satisfied because in looking at this map, one glaring hole remained, a pocket of Athenian strength, their last handhold surrounded by Macedonian lands, the city of Methone, that the Athenians were desperately trying to hang on to, having recently scraped together a few ships sending a contingent of reinforcements to help bolster its defenses, knowing with a high probability that Philip would soon come knocking which, for what it's worth, they were absolutely correct about. Because early into 355 BCE, Philip led his army due south from Pella, marching 40 kilometers to Methone. Surrounding and besieging the city, like he had done in Amphipolis and Potidaea, unleashing his siege engines to begin reducing its walls to rubble. Not knowing that this endeavor would soon put Philip at risk, of not only losing everything he had achieved up to that point, but his very life, owing to one small arrow released from the city's battlements, 
that ended up lodged into his right eye. In the next episode, we'll follow along as Philip launches the Siege of Methone, the last city on the Thermaic or Macedonian Gulf controlled by Athens, including the circumstances surrounding the near-fatal injury sustained by Philip during the siege, and how the grievous wound was treated by his royal physician, Critobulus, using something called the Spoon of Diocles, an injury that does little to slow down Philip's marauding ways conquering Methone, and thus clearing Macedon's sphere of influence of any Athenian possessions. Before taking his first steps towards dominance in Greece, marching his fearsome army southwards beyond Mount Olympus and intervening in the Third Sacred War against the nation of Phocis and its Spartan and Athenian allies, where Philip will initially learn some harsh lessons, experiencing severe setbacks and battle losses that do much to harm his prestige and perceived invincibility, though not temper his ambitions, soon returning to the fight to firmly establish Macedon as a budding superpower and as a viable contender to Greek hegemony. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show, it would be greatly appreciated if you could rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on future warlords that you think I should do an episode on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com. <laughs>